If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Carol, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 196 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for what is sure to be one of the classicists of conversations we've ever had. My guest today is none other than Adrian Barbeau. That's right, Adrian Barbeau. Star of Maud, Escape from New York, Creep Show, Swamp Thing, The Fog, the original Rizzo in the musical Grease, and so much more. You're going to love this conversation, and it's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I just want to spotlight last week's interview with comedian Josh Gondelman. Fabulous episode. Josh is not only a comedian, he is a four-time Emmy Award winner, writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. If you're behind, right after this episode, catch up with that one and also all our bonus episodes, which spotlight segments from our live show, Crossing the Streams. If you're looking for TV binge-watching suggestions, we got your back. But enough about that. It's time for me to share my conversation with Adrian Barbeau with you. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I am excited to introduce you to my next guest, actress, Broadway star, scream queen, author, singer, loved her in The Fog, Swamp Thing, Back to School, Creep Show, and that's just scratching the surface. Welcome to the show, Adrian Barbeau. Welcome. Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for being here. I wanted to cover one quick thing of importance right off the bat. I was reading your memoir. There are worse things I could do. And I yeah. wanted to thank you for the Tabasco sauce on hard-boiled eggs. Oh, <laughs> don't thank me. Thank B. Arthur. <laughs> I'm going to thank you via B. And okay. uh, I've been really into hard-boiled eggs lately. <laughs> <laughs> like, no joke. Is that the first time you've ever considered putting hot sauce on hard-boiled eggs? Yeah. I, you know, I put salt and pepper <laughs> on and I was like, all right, I'm rocking the hard-boiled egg with salt and pepper. And then I read Tabasco sauce. I'm like, I'll try this. I'm willing to try oh, this. Oh, yeah. Like Cholula, <laughs> your hot sauce of choice. <laughs> I know. It's like a game changer. You like, you literally changed my life. <laughs> Especially on the yolk. You know, on the like, it so the drips off, but it goes into the yolk. <laughs> I love that. Right, right. I just, once you bite in, it's like, I got into those Costco hard-boiled eggs. Don't ask me why. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're not cooking them yourself. Well, sometimes we do, but sometimes, you know, they're not the easiest things to make in the world, right? Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I don't mean easiest thing to me. I mean, like, they're time consuming, right? I mean, well, the time it takes you to turn the flame on. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I know it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Welcome. <laughs> For those just tuning in, welcome to Egg Talk. I'm Jeff, and this is my co-host, Adrian. All right, Adrian, you've got this amazing career and so many stories. I'd love to like just start at the beginning, guys, or at least start like New York, go-go dancer for the mob. <laughs> 
Yep. <laughs> when I first got to Manhattan, I needed to work at night because I was hoping to be an actress on Broadway. And if you're going to be an actress on Broadway, you've got to have your day straight. You go to auditions and take classes and take voice lessons and make the rounds, as they say. Um, I answered an ad for a place on West 49th Street between 6th and 7th called Maddie's Mardi Gras. And Maddie found out many, many years later was really Maddie the horse of one of the families. But uh, he was my boss. And I started working there first as a cocktail waitress. They trained me to be a barmaid. And then Maddie had these motorized mannequins on a stage facing the bar, you know, dressed up like musicians. And they moved. The piano player sort of thunked his fingers on the knees and the guitar player looked like he was playing the guitar and the drummer made his hands go up and down. Maddie used to play, you know, we were into 45s, but that time. 45s on the jukebox. You know, patrons would come in and they'd order a drink at the bar and then they'd turn around to enjoy the live band and the leader wasn't the live band. <laughs> they started getting pissed off. And so Maddie got the idea that the girls working there should get up and dance in front of these rice mannequins. Years later, one of the girls who worked there wrote a, a book about being a mistress to the mob. And in it, she says that you were the very first go-go dancers in existence or the first go-go dancers in Manhattan or something. I don't know if it's true, but it was quite a while ago. It could have been true. And then I went on and I danced at various places all over the tri-state area and a place called Trudy Heller's down in the village until I finally got my first union acting job. And then I didn't. And then even I went off and did, did summer stock for five months. But when I came back, I went back and started dancing again until I finally ended up on Broadway. Never had to dance again for money in my life, at least not on a stage as a go-go girl. <laughs> right. Not because you had to. <laughs> right. Not in that format. No. Right. Gotcha. All right. So a fake band. So basically it was like an adult Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Yes, yes, it was. It was. <laughs> All, right. All right, so then you transition from Go Go Girl to Broadway, Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, I played uh, Tevye's second daughter, the one that sings a song at the straight train station and goes off to Siberia with her revolutionary boy chick. My Hebrew name is Tevye. Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, All right. I mean, I had no, no real connection there other than it just happens to be. <laughs> but I, this is, you, you worked with Bette Midler. Bette Midler was in, in the play as well. Yes, Bette was playing Cycle, the older daughter. And she was actually in the show. We both went in as replacements. The show you're running about four years when I joined it, but Bet was already in the show, and, and my two weeks of rehearsal involved sitting in the balcony every night watching the show. Every night, Bet just brought me to tears with that scene with where she's begging Papa to let her marry Muffle the tailor and not Laser Wolf the butcher. She was brilliant. It was even before the Divine Miss Anne. There was no question that she was going to be everything she has become. So she was a powerhouse right right, right from the beginning. Right from the yes. Beginning. Do you keep in touch, or is it more like would you? Would we you keep know? in touch. She she actually uh, gosh, I, the last time I saw her, well, it was way before the pandemic. We email maybe once every two years or something. She gave me a wonderful quote for my for my memoir, my first book. It's nice though. Like, it's funny. It's like talk. Talking now in these days, it's like can mean a text, a Facebook message. <laughs> yeah, but more fun when you're sitting in the in the same room. <laughs> oh know? yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah, especially if one of the people is Adrian Barbeau or Bette Midler. Yes, I will give you that. <laughs> totally. 
In the book, you talk about having anxiety after Fiddler. Was it just nervous to like trying to like, what were you going to do? Just self-doubt? Like what? No, it was actually for Fiddler, really, although it, it didn't raise its head until I was about halfway through Fiddler and I and decided I, you know, it was time to leave. I had been in the show for more than a year and, and Hal Prince, who was my boss, he produced Fiddler, was sending a road company out of Zorba the Greek. So I went in and auditioned for him and I sang Life is What You Do, which is the song the leader sings, because I love the song and I love the role and I I love the song primarily. And I got halfway through the song and Hal started yelling at me from the balcony. What are you singing that for? You're not right for that role. You should be auditioning for the whatever remember I want to say the mistress, but that's not the name of the character. The 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 other woman in the show, it's been year. This is we're going back 1960, it's sure, the late sure. 60s. And I was so, I guess, humiliated that I started having trouble even getting myself to an audition. You know, I was working on Broadway, but I just sort of lost all belief in myself as a singer, certainly. And, you know, I remember I, I used to buy the trades and I'd circle the auditions and then I wouldn't go. Or if I did go, I'd start to sing and I'd lose control of my facial muscles and my knees would be shaking. It was difficult. I eventually... I overcame it by accepting a role, starring a role in, a, in an off-Broadway show where I had to sing and dance, but sing primarily 13 numbers, some of them in the nude. <laughs> and it sort of put paid to my feeling that, that I couldn't, and then I went on to Greece. You know, it's funny, like when I started reading your, your book, I didn't realize you had originated the role of Rizzo in Greece. It's always fun to learn something new and, and really cool. It's such a cool thing to like be the first person of like, oh, wow, that's an iconic character and an iconic play. I'm very proud of it. And I have just finished collaborating on a book about Greece with stories from more than 100 performers who appeared in the Broadway show and in the national companies. Everyone from Travolta to Patrick Swayze to um, Treat Williams, Peter Gallagher, Mary Lou Henner. We collected many, many, many wonderful, funny sometimes touching, sometimes hysterically funny stories from each of them. For the uh, 50th anniversary of Greece, it's called Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More. It's already available on Amazon. (laughs) Greece gave rise to the rest of my career and a good portion of the rest of my life in the way in which you read the book, you realize closest friends, that original company of Greece. And we have all of the Greeces have stayed very, very close. It colored everything going forward, I think. You worked with Barry Boswick, right? And he was Danny Zuko. Yes, yeah. Barry was, was Zuko. And it's funny because when I read that, like I have Barry Boswick now in my head. So I was trying to figure out, oh, Danny Zuko. And but then when I saw the cover of the book, I'm like, oh, Barry Boswick was Danny Zuko. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. (laughs) And he's got some great stories to tell. (laughs) So what what are a couple of the stories that kind of came up suddenly you remembered or is there one or two that you could share with me? I mean, (laughs) one of my favorites is written by Lisa Raggio. Lisa was in the National. Well, she was in several of the companies. She did the show. I think it was the Westbury Music Fair, which was a theater in the round. Now, if you're doing a, a show in the round, there's no backstage. So all of the actors have to change clothes. They set up little um, booths 
at the top of the aisles and you finish a scene, you run up the aisle, run into your booth, change your costume, run back down the aisle, get on stage and do the next scene. Lisa had a very quick change. She had a, uh, a helper, someone who was there, a dresser, someone who was there to help her make the change. And during the show one night, <laughs> during her very quick change, she gets up to her to her change booth, no dresser, nobody there to help her make the change. Well, what could she do? She runs down to the audience. She thinks she's going to grab some lady from the audience and pull her back up. But the audience that day was nothing but high school boys that are all been busted in from various, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> non-co-ed schools or something. So she grabs this 16-year-old or 14-year-old boy, drags him up the thing and says, okay, unbutton my blouse, unsnap my bra, take down my, you know, whatever he was doing. She did. She says it very, very funny. Okay, pull up, do this, do that. Thanks. She hands him a piece of gum instead and sends him back to his chair. The way she tells it is very funny. It was a story I had never heard. And I'm just hoping that that fellow is still around and he picks up a copy of the book and he reads about himself. There were those kinds of stories. There were all kinds of stories. <laughs> but that was one that we had one night. This was the fun upon the in the Broadway show. It was after I had left. We had a rather elderly doorman. And one night in the middle of the park scene, this elderly doorman walked across the stage saying, Telephone call for Bill Hill. Telephone call for Bill Hill. And then he just walked out the other side of the stage. I don't know if what he was like. That's hilarious. So, but there's, you know, everyone tells their audition stories. It's a wonderful oral history, I guess you'd say, of uh, putting together a, a show, how it came to be, how Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey came up with the idea in a drunken stupor <laughs> at a party one night. I think people who care about Greece or who care about the theater or music comedy will really enjoy it. No, it, so it sounds amazing. I was, as I was kind of digging in a little bit on it, I didn't realize John Travolta, I mean, I know he's in the movie, but he was duty. He was duty in the national company. Yeah. He tells some nice stories. And his sister played one of the other roles got to travel with his sister sorry got to take a quick break i want to take a moment to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors when you support the sponsors you're supporting us here at classic conversations and that's how we keep the lights on and now back to my fabulous conversation with adrian barbeau we were about to dive into greece's influence on the tv show happy days and we're back I talked to, I don't remember which of the Happy Days crew, I think it might've been Anson Williams. And they were talking about, you know, the Happy Days, the original pilot had bombed, or not bombed, but it just didn't get picked up. And then the combination of, he said, American Graffiti and Grease stage play popularity is what renewed the interest in that original Happy Days pilot, which then they called on to another pilot and then set it in the 50s. And then that became oh. Happy Days. So. Interesting. All right. <laughs> a little sideline trivia for you. Yeah. I, it was interesting to read, and I think I knew it, but like that Grease play had a really rough start. It took a while to kind of find its way. It sounds like the original reviews weren't as kind as one would hope. Oh, our producers were told by their financial people after opening night reviews came in and they were terrible or they weren't good. They said, post the closing notice, post the closing notice. And we were all walking around thinking, well, that's it. 
you, know, you read the book and you'll... <laughs> well, one of the other really interesting stories, I think, and they just printed it in Forbes magazine, is um, we got a good review from Richard Watt, I think it was, in the Daily News. We got a bad review from Douglas Watts in the Post. I could be getting these names wrong, but the producers took the good review from Richard Watts, and because their names were so similar, they waited until close to five o'clock on the next day, and they bought an ad in the Post, and they printed the Daily News review so that it looked like the Post was giving us a great review. <laughs> and they waited until five so that they could get right under the wire and nobody would catch on. And uh, the next day, it looked like, you know, we got two great reviews. <laughs> that is beyond yeah. brilliant. Like somebody earned yeah. their paycheck big time that day. And then you you got a uh, Tony Award nomination. Yes. It was a real surprise because I didn't even know we were eligible for the Tonys, you know. Uh, and the head of the Tony being whatever that Alexander Cohen whatever, didn't want us in the Tonys because we opened at a, the Eden Theater, which was down in the village, in the East Village. But we were on a Broadway contract because it was such a large theater. But we were not in the neighborhood, in the Broadway environs, you know. And he he wasn't going to let us be eligible. And the producers had Again, said that they were going to go to the press and <laughs> expose it all, and so they finally agreed. He did say nobody oh. would win and would, would win a Tony. It would well, be over it, his yeah. dead body, you know. And he didn't die, but <laughs> so. But yeah, I was nominated, and uh, it's something I'm I'm very proud of. It was an interesting story in the book, the song, There Are Worst Things I Could Do, which is also the name of your memoir. Interesting story in the book that that almost got cut out of the play. Yeah, it wasn't working. And I don't know, they tried everything. Not that it wasn't a good song or that and I wasn't, I was doing it okay. It just wasn't working. The audience was just like, duh, sitting on their hands. And the woman who was the head of the publishing company that was going to publish the music came to see the show in previews. And afterwards, she said to the producer, it's not the song, it's the scene before it. The way it's written, you don't care about her. You don't have any feeling about Rizzo that she's knocked up and that and she's being sort of the way she was. So the guys rewrote that scene that night and the next day they were cheering. The next day, Tony Award nominated. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm guessing I read this in the book, but it was it's been a while, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask in terms of an update. Have you still not seen the movie Grease? I've still not seen the movie. I did see Grease too, I guess when it came out. I don't remember it, but I remember thinking Michelle Pfeiffer was beautiful and what a lovely performance, you know. Yes, I agree with you about Michelle Pfeiffer on Grease too. It's it was a fun sequel. All right, we won't go into why you went didn't see the movie. I didn't see it because I have such wonderful memories of what we did. And I did one day I was at a store or something and I heard some music coming over the music machine. And I thought, what is that? And then I recognized it as being there were worse things I could do from the movie. And they had done such a different approach musically that I thought, oh, no, I'm just going to stick with what I remember. I can relate to that. I understand. Because the grease becomes like the visual that everyone saw and thinks of as grease. But you know, you originated it in its own unique way. And 
There's a disc. I get it. I get it. And the stage play was, it was much different from the movie and much different even from productions that are seen now when they made a big revival many, many years ago. But I think it's much more right, right. lightweight and sort of fun and bubblegummy. We were, we were pretty raw. We were, I mean, you know, we'd get down to those, that touring companies would get down to those cities in the South. <laughs> That's one of the stories. They all walk in and the theater manager says, okay, you've got to do the clean version. And they're all looking at each other like, what's the clean version? I don't know any clean version. Some of them refuse. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I remember as a kid, talent shows, school talent shows, whatever. And inevitably, every talent show had Grease Lightning, right? <laughs> and... I remember later and listening to those lyrics going, how did they let kids lip sync this song? (laughs) (laughs) You know, in like elementary, you know, middle school or whatever, you know, it's like, (laughs) I mean, it's an amazing, great song. That's not what I mean. But when you realize it was coming, you know, the kids, the age of the kids (laughs) that were uh, miming it, it's like, you're like, did anyone ever listen to the lyrics? Did they even know what it ran? Right. Right. (laughs) But even the adults around, the adults around around they're like i mean did no one listen i mean just you just like (laughs) all right so broadway star and that gets you noticed by norman lear and next thing you know you're ma on mod yeah norman his casting director had seen me in the show or read about me and then they called me in and and then they flew me to la for what was not a great audition but they hired me that was the last time it was at work. I worked in New York for many, many years when I started the television and, and then the film career here in L.A. And you remain lifelong friends with B. Arthur? I did, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. With all of them. Conrad Bain, Bill Macy, all of them. It's such an amazing cast. Did you ever ask B. Arthur if she regretted doing the Star Wars holiday special? <laughs> Jeez, did she? I, <laughs> I never even knew that. <laughs> oh yeah, she she sings in it. She's, that one passed me right by. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, she's in that. She sing. You can find that on YouTube. It's worth it. She's actually really good in it. But you know, the it's such a weird Star Wars. <laughs> Thing. But yeah, she likes is the bartender and she sings. She has a whole musical number. Oh, really? Oh, oh really? Oh, well, yeah. I don't know if she regretted it. She she certainly never talked about it. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> That's funny. So oh, I had Fred Grandy on the show. And one of the things he was oh, yes. very excited to point out was he was your boyfriend on Maud. Yes. And then we worked together again on The Love Boat before he went off to his political career. And, and now isn't he uh, isn't he the head of a major charity organization? Or He might be doing that also. But he's also, when I talked to him, which wasn't too long ago, he was touring with a one-man play. And I think he's doing a lot of theater. Wow. I was, oh, but a, a tyke when Maud came out. But like, I rewatched the first episode. So first episode, doorbell, door knock, the Arthur opens the door, Ed Ben. Exactly, Junior. <laughs> was it the first episode? I think so. Yeah, that was yeah, that was the first episode. Come in, you you come in with the sunglasses and you were in therapy. I, or you would. I remember Ed meeting Ed, but I don't remember anything. About it. The only shows I sort of remember were the um, the Mer- the what telethons, the, the you know the talent shows or the telethons that we did where we got all that to sing and dance. It must be hard having sometimes these conversations, I imagine, just remember everything. Because for us, the people that watch it, it lives on forever, right? And for you, it's like, it was a job, you did something that was special. And then I can't remember things that happened. <laughs> 
one thing in the book that was a little upsetting to read, but I mean, it was just like the stuff they put you through to lose weight for the thing where you talked about. Oh, well, I can't blame them. I mean, they, they wanted me to lose weight. I put myself through it. Oh, you, you know? did. Oh, got it. What? You mean the horse urine? Yeah, the horse exactly. urine and 500 calorie yeah. diet. I mean, it's like. Yeah. And then the day I went off of it, I ate so many nuts, I got sick. I must have eaten a pound of almonds or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there was, you know, you're on Broadway, you're dancing up a storm, you've been doing that for eight years, and maybe you're a little, you're not television weight, but it doesn't matter. Nobody says a word, you're in great shape. But, but then you get to TV, and in those days, I don't know if they still sing it, but the camera adds 10 pounds and something. They wanted me to lose weight. It's a lot of pressure. And right? I finally did, <laughs> but it was wasn't easy. It was interesting. I like what I was reading. Sometimes I like to just kind of dig in and see what kind of trivia exists based on uh, kind of the shows. And Conrad Bain negotiated his own series when it ended, Maude ended. And that's, that's how he ended up in different strokes. And then was it in the All in the Family that there was a different Carol? No, not in All in the Family. B made her first appearance as... Maude. Well, yeah, but not Archie's cousin. Edith. Edith's cousin on All in the Family. And... The response was so overwhelming that the story that I've heard, the head of this of the network called Norman the next day and said, who is that girl? Let's get her her own show. You know, she was 48 years old. And then Norman really had to work hard to convince Bean to, because she wasn't interested in coming to LA or doing anything. And so they had her do, I think this is right. I don't think this is the first appearance she made on All in the Family. They did a pilot with Marsha Rod playing the daughter. I don't remember what the pilot was. And the pilot sold. I think Marsha didn't want to move to LA. And maybe there was also the feeling that Marsha and B both equally talented, but were similar in their approach to comedy. And maybe they wanted a little different, you know, someone who wasn't Got it. Much like and be their line of delivery. So they started auditioning women and they auditioned a lot. <laughs> and, and when Norman for Norman had met me in New York, but because the character had already been established as having a seven-year-old child, after our first meeting, he said, no, no, she's not right. She doesn't look old enough to have a seven-year-old. And then when they couldn't find anybody back in LA, that's when they flew me out and had me audition and, and took a chance. Took a chance on a young Adrian Barbo, and here we are. Yeah. But that's awesome. I mean, it's one of the most iconic sitcoms, television shows, period, I guess, ever. So it's it must be amazing just to be part of that legacy, especially since you covered so many amazing topics, uh, social topics. Yes. I was so fortunate because we were we dealt with everything under the sun. And one only wishes we were dealing with those same things now because they've all come back to bite us on the ass. <laughs> I know. I mean, oh my God. Well, that's another story. That's another podcast, right? <laughs> we'll have you back. Yeah. I kind of, I noted that in your book when you talked about certain things. I was like, oh, wow, you could have written this just right now. Oh, yes. Let's keep it light. We'll have a, we'll have a darker okay. version. Okay. <laughs> so now, the, now the, the fog, the fog is coming up in the timeline and you've met John Carpenter already. You were married before the fog, right? I met John in spring of 78 
when he hired me to play the first lesbian on in a television film, something called Someone's Watching Me with Lauren Hutton. And then we became friends and then we became boyfriend and girlfriend and then we got married. I think we got married. I mean, I know we got married on New Year's Eve of 78 going into 79. And then we started filming The Fog right after that. So we had just been married a very short period of time. In fact, we insisted on taking separate hotel rooms when we got on the location because we didn't want anybody to think that she was giving me preferential treatment you know, as his wife. And then at the end of the first day, he came up and he said, I'm not having any fun at all. And I said, either of my, let's, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> let's go back to being husband and wife. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question for you before specifically diving into the movie itself, right? In this time frame, being on TV and doing movies, it wasn't always, it's not an easy jump, right? If they could see you for free on Tuesday night on Maud, the film producers thought there's no way they're going to pay to see you in a movie theater. So, oh, it wasn't really until John Travolta, who was doing Welcome Back, Cotter, made the transition that barely started to change. But had it not been for John offering me the role in The Fog, I don't know. I mean, that may even be why I didn't, well, no, that's not why I didn't get offered or why I didn't even get to audition for Greece. I mean, I was already too old to play that part when I was <laughs> when they were making the movie. But yeah, no, if you were a TV actor, you couldn't get seen for film. Was John given a hard time putting you in the fog because of that? No, I don't think so. I never heard that. I think he had enough. I mean, it was his project. Did people look at you and go, who's this TV star? I think she could be a movie. Like, was there that jealousy? Like- no, no, I never got that. Or any of us. I mean, well, no, Jamie Lee was was known for Halloween. I'm trying to think. Of. I guess maybe I was the only one that came from television. Now that I think about it. But no, I, I never. This never crossed my mind. I, I think they wanted John's project and they gave John his free reign. He had to fight to get Kurt Russell into Escape from New York because the network wanted, or the studio wanted Charles Bronson and somebody else wanted Tommy Lee Jones. And John just said, well, if you don't take Kurt, you don't get the project. They had worked together on Elvis. Yes, but the studio thought Kurt was a uh, Disney actor. Right, that's right. You, you know, I know, I until you just said it, I, you forget Kurt Russell was a Disney guy. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But he was a badass in Escape from New York. Oh, he was great. But no, there was never, I never heard anything, anybody saying, no, you can't hire her for, she's from TV. No, I just wondered if it was weird just because of, you know, how they separated. It was like oil and water moving TVs back then. If, if there was any, anything that like, you know, did jealousy or any, any, I was just curious. It was just, yeah. No, not at all. Like you've done like all amazing things, but at least three are considered like cult, cult classics, Escape from New York, which you mentioned, Fog, this one, and then Swamp Thing. The Fog, I mean, not just Jamie Lee Curtis that you mentioned, but also her mom, Janet Lee, and you was like cornucopia of Scream Queens right there. (laughs) John knew how to cast. (laughs) An amazing cast. Imagine it's as a director, it's a stressful thing putting together a movie because I read it in the book and just some other research, you know, there was editing and then he he wanted to kind of wasn't really happy with the original cut and he like kind of fixed it. And I think it it worked out for everyone except The Fog, who didn't get another job until 2005 when they remade The Fog. (laughs) uh, (laughs) 
And then it wasn't the same fog, was it? It was CGI. Right. <laughs> it wasn't our uh, our fog juice. Right. They didn't even, <laughs> they didn't even hire oil. the original fog. We're sorry, we're going <laughs> to. But it was interesting when I mentioned the uh, trivia is that there's a scene where they filmed it and then played it in reverse to get the fog to. Yes. You know, it was 1979. They didn't have CGI, they didn't have any way to evacuate the fog from the scene. They could blow the fog into the scene using fans. But they couldn't suck it out in the last scene where I'm on the roof of of the uh, lighthouse. I am surrounded by fog and the ghost is chasing me. And then suddenly something happens, deus ex machina, with, with Hal Holrook in the church, and the ghosts disappear and the fog disappears at the end of the scene with me acting in reverse. I had to do the, oh my God, the thing has disappeared and I'm I'm saved you know, with no fog on me. And then the fog is around me and he's, I don't get I can't explain <laughs> it to you now, but no, I we got it in reverse. They develop the negative upside down or something. Again, not my table, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was the gentleman came to me and he said, "Okay, we've got to do it like this." Is the only thing you have to remember is don't blink because if you blink, if you blink quickly, it looks really weird <laughs> when we reverse the shell or the negative. And so I tried not to blink. That's a lot of pressure. Don't blink. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Oh, there, I was going to say, like, so much ingenuity goes into like the movies before CGI. It's like yes. there's there's Something about the realism and the feel is completely different because they actually had to do that. What you're seeing is yeah. what you're seeing. So it, it adds, I think, a whole layer to it. Brilliant. Sorry, got to take a quick break. And we're back with Adrian Barbeau. Then you, you did Escape from New York after the fog. Was that yes. your next movie? No. I did something in, in uh, Greece called The Time Traveler with Tier Delay. So Escape from New York, and then Cannonball Run, and Charlie and the Great Balloon Race, and then Swamp Thing, then Creepshow. You had like, and then The Thing, computer voice uncredited. You had an incredible early 80s. <laughs> yeah, and then there, and then that was that, the one with Tear Delay in Greece. I know that must have come right after The Fog, um, maybe beca- before the others, whatever. Charlie and the Great Balloon Chase was a, a TV movie, and Back to School was in there somewhere, and uh, yeah, 19, Swamp Thing. 19, 1986, right? right? Swamp so Thing, uh, 82. So at this point, are you now a movie actress? Like, you're, they're like, oh, she used to be a TV star. Are you like, it's interesting that it was no. like, no, that you're still seen no. as a TV actor? By that point, I think that was just going back and forth. I mean, anything, whatever came along that, and I even, well, in 84, I did, no, 83 it would have been because I got pregnant when I left. I did six months on stage here in LA, a play called Women Behind Bars with Lou Leonard. Sally Kellerman replaced me, I think, when I left. So, no, I was, I was, I was sort of bouncing back and forth. Let me, let me ask the question a different way. Did you, because of all the movie success, did you lose that TV actors can't do movie stigma? Like, did you, were you able then to just, people were like, oh, we have a movie, Adrian Barbeau. Yeah, for sure. Like there was no more like, oh, she's a TV. Yes, yes. By that time, uh, by that time, it wasn't just me. I mean, by that time, I think the end of, when did Travolta do Saturday Night Fever? And, you know, mm-hmm. the industry had started realizing that they could draw from television as well. And the one thing you have in common with John Travolta, you both were in the Broadway Greece. Boom. There's something about that Greece. Yes. yes. Something yeah. about that. 
Cannibal Run, interesting take you had on it in the book. It sounded like there was it was a dangerous set. You talk about one of the, the horrible accidents that, that happened on the set and then how loose that movie was. Not your favorite thing to do other than meeting Roger Moore? Not my favorite thing to do, no. <laughs> it's funny, as I look back on Cannibal Run, I was like, I was in my head when I saw it. I was like, oh, it's just a crazy movie, Dom DeLuise, Captain Chaos, you know, like I just all this craziness, Jackie Chan, and no one knew who Jackie Chan was yet, all that kind of stuff. Jamie Farr, but you know, the, it really weird characters in that movie. But then reading like the backstory, like of you actually being there and some of the things that happened, it was, uh, you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't as great as I remembered. <laughs> well, millions of people love it. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those. It's a, it's a popcorn movie at its popcorniest, I suppose. Creep Show. I rewatched Creep Show because I hadn't seen it in so long. I rewatched The Crate. <laughs> That's a great movie. That is a fun movie. You were great in it. Hal Holbrook, you got to work with again from The Fog. And oh my God, you were your character was a real bitch. Wow, it was. Uh, <laughs> You were on. <laughs> it's a great tagline you had in that, and it's a great little thing. Hal Holbrook really did not like you. <laughs> Rodney Dangerville almost didn't like you as much in Back to School. <laughs> was that fun? Yes, it was. It was fun. Rodney was a character. It was just fun. <laughs> Rodney's just so hilarious. You're not in it the whole time, but I mean, your your character is pivotal to pivot, pivotal, pivotal. <laughs> Pivotal. 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 Thank you. I was trying to throw some extra letters. <laughs> Pivotal to the whole uh, plot. It's really, really, really funny. Such a fun movie. I love that movie. And then Swamp Thing. Just rewatch Swamp Thing too. I like to rewatch some movies as I'm, as I'm kind of getting ready because I loved Swamp Thing when I was a kid. I mean, I remember seeing it was on cable. I mean, I've seen Swamp Thing like a million times. It was interesting. Your, your reaction to the movie was pretty much, it sounds like, from the research I did, the same as Wes Craven's reaction to the movie once it was done. But it went on to become a cult classic. Everyone loved it. Siskel and Ebert. Yes, yes it did. It got me interested. What do you know was Wes's reaction? Because I don't know that I've ever read anything or heard anything. What did he say? Well, I mean, it, you know, it was a nightmare for him to produce, to direct, because they kept pulling budget out from under him. But what did he say that you know? I, it was kind of a little bit along those lines. He didn't... He, he didn't work for nearly two years after the film's release. Really? Felt like he had his chance and kind of blew it. And he felt like he would never work again. Oh. But it's one of those things where it's like when you watch it, you know, especially comic book movies at the time, it was a fun movie. And people love it. I, I have people come up to me all the time. And they just they love it. They just love it. I think for Wes and for me, it was just disappointing because we both knew what he started with, the screenplay that he started with and and what his vision was and what, what it could have been had the studio supported him. But whatever. That happens though, right? I mean, like an amazing script and then they, they just, it doesn't lift off the page. I have no doubts he could have had he gotten the budget, like you had mentioned in the book. And I remember there was an interesting, the the one bad guy that takes the potion, he changes. And then the other guy, uh, Lewis Jordan's character, he changes. And someone was like talking to Wes Craven, how he felt about those transformations. And <laughs> it said, all Wes did was give a sigh. That was his answer. I mean, and if anything, it was a really fun movie and then how did it feel to like revisit that franchise like because you were on the tv show as well right i did one episode of the tv show i was incredibly impressed with the set that they had built oh my gosh the the swamp that they had built was i just wish 
West had been around to see it. It was it was incredible. It was remarkable. I mean, I guess the show got caught up in some kind of a business situation and they canceled it. It was not because it wasn't well received. But yeah, I just got to do uh, one episode. I played the head of the CDC and it would have been a recurring role, I think, had the show gone on. But, but it was fun to be asked. Yeah, that's cool. And then you revisited Creepshow as well. And that was fun to be asked too. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't Billy, you know. Right. But it was great working with Greg Nicotero and Tobin, uh, who I had worked with. We had just not long before that played an incestuous brother and sister on Criminal Minds, I think it was. So when I do kind of research, I Google stuff, right? I'll Google your name, see what comes up, you know, that kind of stuff. Celebrity bowling. I still have my ball and my shoes and the bag that they gave me to carry the ball in. <laughs> Thing that, besides having never heard of this show, when I looked at it, this is what really, really caught my eye. It was season one, episode 132. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this must have been like huge celebrity bowling. How did I miss this? Was it six nights a week or something? It must have been. You went up against Kathy Lee Crosby and... I was like, I remember nothing. It's just that I still have the shoes in the ball. <laughs> well, I tell you, the entire episode is on YouTube. <laughs> so, oh, you're kidding me. No. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so that was your episode of Sha Na Na. There's like a lot of fun really? stuff. There's a lot of fun oh, stuff. Really? Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> I bet they don't have any footage of me as an 18-year-old being Miss Wrestling for Channel 58 in Oakland, California, when gorgeous George threw a chair at me. <laughs> oh, no. That was long before videotape. <laughs> that would be amazing. There is a book, however. There's a book written about it with a picture of me, I think. And then in your book, I think it was in your book, it said you, t- you turned down $100,000 for celebrity boxing, keeping with yes. the celebrities. Up against. Anna Nicole Smith. Yes, she was my neighbor. She lived up to the hill from me. Yes, no, I did turn that down. And then you did more, so many games. You are on every pyramid show. I was one of their top winners. Yeah. Yes. And I didn't remember this <laughs> until I ran into jo- Joanne Worley. We were doing some benefit or something, and she reminded me. We did the pilot for the Gong Show up in San Francisco. I don't remember it. I remember really? walking with Chuck Barris someplace. But but yeah, we did the pilot for the Gong Show. But those were the days, uh, you know, you did your TV show during the week, mod or whatever. And on the weekends, that was the reality performances, the, the game shows. So many of them, and I don't even remember the names of some of them, you know. But most of them were fun. Hollywood Squares, you know, the, the $100,000, $10,000, $25,000 pyramid, I think Tattletale. There was like a million, million of them. Yeah. So that was that's how it worked. You kind of made the rounds as you did the shows. I mean, that's fun. You probably got to meet a lot of extra people you wouldn't have met otherwise. Yes. Carnival on HBO. One of my own favorite jobs. What made it your favorite? I just loved everything about it. I love the character. I love the people that were writing it. I love the actors, the crew, caterers, the fact that it was 38 miles from my house and I could drop the kids off at school and sometimes pick them up. The opportunity to play that character, a snake dancer with some kind of psychic 
abilities at that time in my life when you wouldn't expect, you know, a woman who was moving into her 50s to be playing a sexual being (laughs) instead of a nurse or a lawyer or a judge. I just loved it. And then, I mean, you've done tons of voiceover work for Batman, Selena uh, Selena Kyle, Catwoman, video games. You've done everything. You've like it's you've just done a little bit of everything. I have. If you could choose one thing to do, what would you want to focus on? Would it be Broadway, another TV show, a movie? Like if you could have your druthers. It really comes down to the role. It really comes down to the words. The last time I was on stage was in 2016. I did the national tour of Pippin, and I accepted it because Pippin's grandmother sings a great song hanging upside down from a trapeze 15 feet in the air with no net. And um, there I was at, at my age doing a trapeze act and, wow. and singing at the same time. <laughs> Those kinds of roles. I guess I would say I am least interested in doing stage primarily because I wake up at 530 in the morning and I go all day. And, you know, by eight o'clock at night, I'm ready to sit down. <laughs> and that's a whole reversal in terms of uh Sure. lifestyle stage. But if, if the all-time great role came along, sure. It really just depends on the words. I guess I was remiss. I should have added author. Would you like to just write your own, continue to write your own books? And then maybe turn those into something. I mean, like a, a movie or miniseries. Well, or... my second vampire novel, we have almost finished with a, um, a pilot script for it for a series. That's awesome. What I like about writing, I am not dependent upon anybody else for my creativity, but I don't think I'm a writer. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if I have, you know, I'm not a story person, really. So I don't know if I will write again. I will we'll see. I, the Grease book was, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it came out, but I was more of a collaborator on it. Memoir and three vampire books, I'd say that puts you in author category. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're a writer. Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, you've done, it's so much, so much amazing career and so many things you've done. It's just incredible. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was fun too. (laughs) We got to talk about stuff that I don't always talk about. I assume you mean the the hard boiled eggs. Where can people keep up with you? I know you have a website and do you hang out on the socials? I'm on Insta. I'm not, I mean, I have a Facebook fan page and I do post on it when I've got something to talk about. They all are similar names, but they all just, (laughs) they're all just a little different. And so I'm trying to find, I made notes to myself because I never remember. I think my Instagram account is Adrienne underscore Barbeau. I have a website, which I try to keep up to date. That's abarbo.com. Rarely use my Twitter account, especially in this day and age when I don't want to get started. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> um, All right. And my Facebook account is at four, the number four, A Barbo. And I guess what I post on Insta sometimes shows up on the Facebook account, but mostly I just, I follow my boys on Instagram, all three of them with their three different really fantastic careers. Then when I've got something going on, I put it up there. I mean, there will be stuff about the book coming out, you know, that that will definitely come out. When I do conventions, I'm, I make sure I always have those up on my website and on Instagram. Most of my time, 
time these days is spent narrating television series and films for uh, for the visually impaired. Oh, that's wonderful. That's awesome. I really enjoy that. So if, you know, if you're watching TV and you put your SAP channel on, you might hear my voice, you might hear someone else's, but I do, uh, I just did a wonderful movie. It's a documentary about I can't say anymore. Okay, Shoot. you've said too much. You've said too much. I, you know what? I do have a question since you brought up conventions. I have one last question yeah. for you because you would be what I would consider a Comic-Con conundrum. And what I mean by that is I would come up to you and have my money ready and I'd have to put so much thought into which headshot or picture I'm going <laughs> to pick because there's so many that I could go with, right? The Creep Show, a Swamp Thing, an Escape from New York, right? There's a, probably something from The Fog you probably have there. And who else knows what else you got on that table? Star Trek. Oh, yeah, Woman. right, right. Deep Space One, you're Back in. Back to school, Drew Carey. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You're like, uh, you're like my a comic you're like my comic-con nightmare i wouldn't you know are you like you have to go all right i gotta make a choice i got to make a choice <laughs> what what do people choose the most of do you have is or is it like split between some well you know it depends on the convention so some conventions are horror related and some of them are comic related so if it's a comic convention sometimes they might take the poster of scooby-doo <laughs> you know, but oh, they'll take batman or uh something in there but the horror conventions and again it depends on it depends on who else is at the con i i try to do conventions with tom atkins whenever i possibly can to give me opportunities to spend time with him because he's one of my closest friends if tom and i are both at a convention then there's going to be a lot of fog people there and they want to take a fog poster or they'll want to take a creep show poster because we were both in creep show it just depends it depends on the part of the country cannonball is is a big the cannonball poster is a big seller it just depends i mean i never know i never know and then i have people come up and say oh you don't have anything from cannonball women in the avocado jungle of death <laughs> i'm thinking uh no i don't i don't have anything from that just and, say just uh, say bill maher has one of those at his table yeah <laughs> or sons of anarchy or her or the video game that's what i'm saying you're like this you're like uh, you're a, you're a comic-con nightmare <laughs> and i mean that in the, in the most loving way because you have so many and you have to pick one I always wish, oh, they should make a montage photo. That would be the one that would just blow up. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It does play into if, if other people are there. If you have other fog people there or creep show or Batman, right. they're going to want yeah. multiple signatures on one thing. So it all, yeah. all these yeah. variables. All right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. You're thank awesome. you. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. The amazing Adrian Barbeau. I can only imagine you're already heading to the cupboard or wherever you keep your hot sauce and probably started boiling some hard-boiled eggs right at the beginning of the interview so you'd be ready when it was over to enjoy that delicacy. So many great stories. Check out Adrian's memoir. Check out her oral history of Greece. Tell me more. Tell me more. Take this time to dive into one of your favorite Adrian Barbeau movies. All right. Can you believe it? The interview is over. So that can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 196 has come to an end. One more thank you to my special guest, Adrian Barbeau. And of course, a huge thank you to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. 
If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.